If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, the last chapter of this book we've been studying since January. Tonight, uh, we turn to 16 chap- uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. In the previous chapter, we spent six weeks on the famous chapter on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He, he triumphed over the grave so that all who were united to him by faith may live with him as well. Now in chapter 16, Paul turns from the life of the world to come to the everyday life of this world. He speaks about our use of time and our use of money, or as some might say, he's gone from preaching to meddling. Let me invite you to turn with me to these verses and hear now the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that Your word is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man and woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray you would do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. A man had a heart attack and was rushed to the hospital. He was told he could have very few visitors and he was not to be excited by anyone. While in the hospital, a rich uncle died, left him a million dollars, and his family really wondered how to break the news to him with the least amount of excitement. And they concluded that they should send the preacher if he would go and and, uh, break the news gently. So the preacher went and he gradually led up to the question. The preacher asked the patient, what would he do? If he inherited a million dollars, the man said, I think I would give half of it to the church. And the preacher promptly died. I don't know if that ever really happened. But it introduces money. There you go. Paul begins here with the words, now concerning the collection, verse 1. What follows is Paul's answer to a question they've asked him. This little phrase, now concerning, appears in a variety of places in the book. They'd asked about sex, and he answers their question. They'd asked about marriage and divorce and remarriage. They'd asked about eating food sacrificed to idols. They'd asked about spiritual gifts. They had all these questions. They were spiritually interested people. And so Paul gives his answer here, and in doing so, shows believers, even today, the importance of living a deliberate and intentional lifestyle for Jesus. 
If we do not govern our schedule, our time, then our schedule will govern us. And if we do not have mastery over our expenses, our expenses will master us. But Paul wants to speak about both time and money in the lives of Christians, that we might serve Jesus with them and Jesus' people. And so I want you to think about those two big issues, our use of time and our use of money. Paul says something about both in this passage. In the first place, our use of time. Paul here is on his third missionary journey. On this pass, he's going through the churches, collecting money as he preaches the gospel, but money not for himself, money to carry to Jerusalem for the poor saints who are suffering in Jerusalem. And he writes them ahead of time because he wants them to be ready with that collection. That's why he writes. Now, here he instructs us, verse 2, on the first day of every week, he says, set aside your money. On the first day of every week. Now, why does he say on the first day of every week? Because Paul knows that they will be together on the first day of the week. This is when Christians gathered for public worship. It had been the seventh day of the week up until the time of Christ, the Jewish Sabbath day, but it switched to the first week with the resurrection of Christ, and Paul knows they're going to be together. Now we might just pause there and ask the question, why did the apostles switch the day of public worship from Saturday to Sunday, from the seventh to the first day of the week. And let me highlight six reasons very briefly. Number one, because on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. And in commemoration of the finished redemption, they gathered on that day. And it was on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday, that he met with his disciples when they were hidden away in fear in that private room in Jerusalem. He appeared to them, not on the seventh day, but on the first. And then it was a week later, after Thomas didn't believe and wanted to see Jesus all for himself, that he appeared for them, to them again on the first day of the week. And then it's on the first day of the week that the Holy Spirit is given with great power at Pentecost. And then it's on the first day of the week that we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that the church gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper with the Apostle Paul. This is that night where the, Paul just droned on and on, as preachers will do, and it got to be midnight, and a little boy fell out of a window, and Paul has to go downstairs and literally bring him back to life. Well, that was the first day of the week. They had gathered to break bread. We also find that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, it was on the first day of the week that the apostle John was in the spirit and saw the vision of the glorified Christ and the Lord's day, he called it. Well, for these reasons and others, Christians for the last 2,000 years have worshipped publicly together on Sunday because God's word proscribed it. We can worship on other days. We're free to worship together as often as we want in addition to the first day, but it is the first day of the week that God calls us to worship him together. So here they are on the first day of the week. It says Paul, so Paul says, on the first day of the week, I want you to put your resources together. Gather them up so there's no collection when I come. So likewise do we. That is why we take up a collection Sunday by Sunday in our worship service. 
And you should know that's why we do that. We believe we're commanded to as an act of worship. Now, now don't overlook all of this. This is a little bit about money and a little bit about time. But Paul is saying to them, I know you folks have actually planned your weeks. <laughs> I know that you have arranged your schedule so that you can be together. I know that you've begun to organize your lives according to God's priorities for you. Paul knows that because he knows that there are Christians there. And so they've begun to live according to God's agenda. Six days they're to labor and work, but one day they're to to rest, gather in public worship, fellowship together, encourage one another, give to the ministry, and rest from their labors. And I want to say to us, we need the Lord's Day. We need one day in seven to set aside all the other junk and give our attention to God's priority. One man challenged another man to a wood chopping contest. The challenger worked very hard, stopping only briefly for lunch during the middle of the day. And the other man had a long, leisurely lunch, and he took breaks again and again Throughout the day, at the end of the day, the challenger was stunned and annoyed to find that the man he had challenged thoroughly beat him in chopping wood. I don't get it. Every time I checked, you were taking a rest, and yet you chopped more wood than I did. But what you didn't notice, says the winning woodsman, was that I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest. Friends, the Lord's Day is not a waste. When God calls us to do something, it's not only for his glory, but it is to our benefit. And it does serve to sharpen the axe that we might be more useful in service to Jesus. So we need to organize our week. Speaking to the choir, who's here on a Sunday night. But we should prioritize what God prioritizes. Paul knows they're going to be together. So that's the first word about time. The second is this, notice how Paul intends to use his own time. Notice the language of verse 3. When I arrive, he says, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go with them, well, I'll go with them. Now listen, what is he saying? He's saying, I am willing to sacrifice a lot of time and money in service for the kingdom. If it will help the church. If it seems advisable, he says, I'll even make the trip from Corinth to Jerusalem. And you didn't get on a plane and get there in three hours. And we might be tempted to say, well, easy for him. He's in full-time Christian ministry. I mean, what else does he really have to do? But no, though he had the right to be paid for his time, he chose not to. He defends the right to be paid back in chapter 9. If you want to flip there for a moment, you'll see that he could have taken all this time and had it all paid for by the church. When he says in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much 
if we reap material things from you. And skip down to verse 14. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul had every right to say, y'all take up a collection and it's going to fund my ministry because I'm your apostle. And yet we know that Paul chose not to exercise that right among the Corinthians, though he defended that right for their local pastor. But Paul is a tent maker. Paul works for a living to supply his own needs. That's what he chose to do as an apostle. In other words, if he's going to make this trip from Corinth to Jerusalem, he's going to do it on his own time at his, at his own expense. He's, he's going to take vacation from his business work to go make that trip. Or he's going to take his tent-making skills along that trip to pay his own way. But either way, it's going to cost Paul to do it. But for him, it was a privilege. Now, how about for us? Are you tempted to think that Jesus asks too much of you, too much of your time, or too much of your money, that really you're so busy, you can't really be expected to give your time in service to him? Well, let me ask you, what do you have that you did not receive? All your time is a gift from him. If you won't serve him with your time now, what makes you think that you will have time later? Your life is but a vapor of mist here today and gone tomorrow. You have no idea how much time you have. If you waste your time, you will never get it back. This is why I had a midlife crisis at the age of 35. I did, but I couldn't afford to buy a boat. But I was depressed for over a year because I kept saying to myself, what have I done with my life? I'm 35 and I've, I've wasted so many hours doing stupid things and I've, I've only got so many hours left. Thankfully, a friend pulled me out of that by reminding me that when you're 35, if you get a full life, 70 or 80 years, then you've only really just begun your adult life. Okay. There is, if you get a full life, more time to not waste. But we don't know how long we get. That's the point. And you can't save up your days and cash them in later. So serve him with your time now. And besides, as chapter 15 tells you, the resurrection is real. And we're going to rise from the grave for an eternity of days. You will not then look back and think time spent serving Jesus now was wasted, for it is not. Remember, he said, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's how he ends the chapter in 15. So we need to learn to pray with the psalmist, teach me to number my days aright that I may gain a heart of wisdom. We need to take Paul's counsel in Ephesians. Let us look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. Why should we do that? Because here's how Jesus spent his time. I must be about my father's business, he said. And that meant he had time to grow up and love his family 
eat, sleep, learn the Bible, learn to be a carpenter, rest, celebrate weddings, mourn at funerals, vacation, pray, minister, teach, preach, suffer for our sins, and die. He had time for all that. You have time to serve him, dear Christian. Well, that's the first thing. We should be deliberate about the use of our time. But then there's more in here about the use of our money. Notice what Paul says about the use of our money. Five or six things. He, again, is gathering funds to help the poor who are in the church in Jerusalem. Let me say five or six things. Number one, it was communal giving. Go back to verse one. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. What do I mean? It was communal giving. Well, they were going to share in a multi-church partnership, pitching in together to help the poor. Jerusalem was suffering some kind of famine. Believers in, the, in Jerusalem at this time in history had one of the toughest times serving him because it was the center of Judaism. And uh, they were often kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of their homes, kicked out of their workplaces. They were hit hard. Now, Paul, obviously, he is not saying to us in our day, we have to take up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem, the poor that existed in his day. But here and elsewhere, he's modeling for us giving for the needs of the poor. And we are commanded to do that elsewhere. And we should do it, Paul says, Communally, it's not bad to give it personally, not bad to give it privately, but we can do far more together than we can do on our own. There are certain causes the church cares about that we should collectively participate in. I was preaching at Trinity Grace Church in Rogers. It's a sister church that sends us a check every month in support of this work because as a new church, we're not yet fully funded. I'm a missionary on their behalf in Siloam. Well, for the last 12 years, and that's how long they've been in existence, they've helped six seminary students go to seminary, and they've helped six church plants get started with, I might say, very significant amounts of money. They currently support 18 total mission works, one church plant, one seminary student, one college ministry, one local ministry, 12 foreign ministries, our local regional presbytery and the National Church of the PCA. Years ago, I worked at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. Now, Trinity Grace is about 200 and some members. First Pres Jackson is over 2,000 members. And they've been in existence since the mid-1800s. At the time I worked there, over a decade and a half ago, they had over, at that time, a 5 to $6 million budget, a million of which went to foreign missions, local missions, and benevolence-giving Um, on behalf of the poor and the needy. And I simply want to say, we aspire to be a church like that. It may take 100 years or 12 years, but they are good models for us in giving generously for the needs of God's people. And here it was communal giving. They did more with others than they could do on their own. That's the first thing. The second is that, notice, it was planned giving. Each week, he says, set aside your money, store it up. Okay, Um, this is not his command for the tithe, 
There's no specific amount required. It's extra giving they gave beyond to the local church in support of their own ministry, but it was for the poor. And they were not to do it spontaneously. You you shouldn't, Paul seems to be saying, ordinarily find that the offering plate has passed in front of you, and you say to yourself, oh, oh yeah, I, I should remember to give something. But no, he says, store it up. In the Old Testament, the tithe was often a portion of the livestock and crop that uh, somebody had, and it was the first part taken. Then some of the crop was to be left in the fields for the poor to glean from. In other words, in the Old Testament, giving was very planned. It was ordered. It was structured. It was purposeful. And we, likewise, Paul is saying, ought to be purposeful in our giving. When you aren't purposeful, you give very little. But when you plan to give, you give much more generously and much more strategically. We all know that. And this is how Paul says we ought to give. Charles Simeon once said that he showed economy to himself, liberality to his friends, and generosity to the poor. What would you say your plan is with your money? As you have received, so give. That's the second thing. Notice the third thing. It was saved for giving. It wasn't just planned for. It was saved for. It shouldn't just be whatever cash you happen to find lying around. Stewardship is not just about giving, but it's about spending. How we spend affects how much we can give. Have we learned to live within our means so that we can plan to and save for giving generously? Uh, William Barclay, who I would otherwise not quote ordinarily, had it right on the money when he said, it is a grim commentary on human nature that when a man is dreaming of what he would do if he was a millionaire, he always begins by thinking what he would buy for himself and seldom of what he would give away. And Paul here says, think about what you will give away. And store it up. Then in the fourth place it was to be cheerful giving. Now he doesn't say it specifically here in that way. But notice that this giving was not supposed to be a last minute effort. Under some kind of emotional peer pressure. It's not uh, Paul arrived quick pass the plate let's get some money together. Uh, Nor was it a 24 hour contest designed to pressure you into publicly giving to a cause you really knew nothing about. That involves ice. Enough said. But the better way, Paul says, is is found in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's to be cheerful giving. Fifthly, it's to be proportional giving. Each, he says, is to give, middle of verse 2, as he may prosper, or in accordance with his prosperity. So the widow would have been right to cut her penny into a, a hundred pieces and give but one part, but she gave the whole of it. She gave all that she had, and Jesus says she gave more than anyone. And the rich man, we might say, who gives but 10% 
hasn't really sacrificed much at all. Have you ever heard of Letourneau University? It was founded by Robert Letourneau, who lived from 1888 to 1969. It's a Christian Christian university in Texas. He was an industrialist who had dedicated himself to being a, a businessman for God, is how he put it. He actually had a seventh grade education, but he taught himself engineering, and he eventually built a, a manufacturing empire. He was the maker of almost 300 inventions that he holds patents for, and his machines accounted for nearly three-fourths of all the earth-moving equipment used in World War II. So you can imagine he was fabulously rich. And he decided that it would be his aim to live on 10% and give away 90%. He said, I shovel out the money and God shovels it back and God is a bigger shovel. Why not? Look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm barely any closer to this than I aspired to be when I first heard this decades ago. But why not all of us at least aspire to living on 10 and giving 90? Wouldn't that be a great goal? Give. Give as you have been given, as you have prospered, Paul says. Notice in the sixth place that it was, it was wise giving. This is the last thing about giving. It was wise. Like a businessman, Paul uses best practices. So he says at verse 3, when I arrive, I'll send by letter those whom you accredit to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, don't give the money to me. (laughs) It's your money. You give it to those you approve of, to those who are tested, to those who have integrity. And don't just give it to one person. Let multiple people keep their eyes on it. A wise person, Paul says, a wise church will do the work to be sure the money gets where it should be going and helps those It is intended to help. So Paul commends communal, planned for, saved for, cheerful, proportional, and wise giving. Now let me ask you this question as we close. Where do you get a heart for that? And what if you find in your own heart, as I do in mine, a reluctance to be lavish and generous with my time? And with my money. Well, I think Robert Rayburn, who's a pastor, helpfully illustrates for us how we get a heart for this. Uh, when he summarizes the plot of George Eliot's novel, Silas Marner. I don't know if you know that book, but Silas Marner was a miser. He was a very ill-tempered man. He lived for nothing but hoarding his own money. And as Eliot described him, soon, uh, so year after year, Silas Marner had lived in in a solitude, his guineas, that's the English kind of money, his guineas rising in the iron pot and his life narrowing and hardening itself more and more into a mere pulsation of desire and satisfaction that had no relation to any other being. But then Marner's money is stolen and his life is shattered. Just when he thought that life was no longer living, had no more purpose or reason, he finds an abandoned girl and he takes her in and he cares for her. 
And this is a strange combination of this old, solitary, bitter man and this little needy child. But over time, as Elliot weaves the story together, the child changes the man and brings happiness to him and a sense of purpose and fulfillment that is his goal never had or could do. And the climax of the story comes when 16 years later, Marner's gold is suddenly discovered. And now he looks at it in a completely different light. Now he says it's not to hoard, but to give to his beloved daughter who's about to be married. As Silas says to this girl, Epi, the money was taken away from me in time. And you see, it's been kept till it was wanted for you. The money takes no hold of me now. The money doesn't. I wonder if it ever could. It might. If I lost you, Epi, I might come to think I was forsaken again and lose the feeling that God was good to me if I lost you. Here's the lesson of the story. The love of money will be broken in our hearts only when a far deeper and stronger love crowds it out. Then money will take its rightful place in our life, not as an object of our devotion, but simply as an instrument with which to love God and love others. Do you want to be a good and faithful steward? Then think of what Jesus did for you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet he became poor. That you through his poverty might be made rich, says the apostle. So the first step in in giving yourself, your time, and your money to God is to realize you haven't given yourself and your time and your money to God. Not instantly, not completely, not continuously, not in every nook and cranny of your life. And then you remember that, that Jesus gave himself instantly, continuously, completely, in every nook and cranny of his life, always and forever, for you to die for your sins, to be raised for your justification, and to give you eternal life. And then we repent of our wastefulness and our selfishness out of a greater love for Jesus who first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you that Jesus gave himself for us, that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him for us all. How would you not also with him graciously give us all things? Thank you for the time and the money that we have. And that we might one day have, thank you for everlasting time. Thank you that we are co-heirs with Christ of all things. Now help us to be more like Jesus in generosity. Forgive us for being misers. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and praise the Lord.